0: You guys can go ahead and find a seat. Okay, here's my theory about sports complexes. If you wanna go for it, you get in the swimming pool. That like communicates to everyone that you are next level about sports plexes. The guys who are swimming, it's like, yes, we are here to party because I'm willing to jump into a swimming pool. and So therefore, we will start the first annual swim, speed thing, what is that called? Swimming laps? Seeing who can do it the fastest. A race. Thank you. We're going to have a swimming race. Thank you for that word. It's a difficult word to formulate. A swimming race. I will be in the, the pool doing hot laps. If you think you can beat me, I will see you in the pool. It will be a good time. There's also some murmurs. I can't confirm or deny. I will confirm or deny this next week, but I'm going to start a rumor. There may be trivia at the Sportsplex as well. Don't know? I will confirm or deny that next week when we come back for Salt Company. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and start opening to Genesis 15. We are in part two of our Abraham series tonight. Last week, we did part one in Genesis 12 And we saw that Abraham was used in a great way by God, but not because he was great, but because he as an ordinary person committed himself to an extraordinary God. And because of that, God gave him a promise. This promise included the promise of land, the promise of making him into a great nation, the promise that through him an offspring would come that would bless the nations. Tonight, part two, we are going to cover six chapters in Genesis and see how God fulfilled this promise to bring an offspring into the world, this offspring that would bless the nations. So Genesis 15 is where we're going to be at. We try to get the scripture up on the screen because that's super helpful, but honestly... If you don't have a Bible, let us know because we would love to get you a Bible. We try to open the Bible. We not only try, we open the Bible every Thursday night at Salt Company because we don't wanna just tell you how we think you should live. We together as a ministry wanna look at God's word and see how God wants us to live, how we should think about who he is. So Genesis 15 is where we're gonna be at. And like I said, we're gonna see how God brought about this promise to give this old couple in their 70s, a child, Abraham and Sarah. And what we're going to see is that God fulfills his promise to bring them an offspring. But all along the way, you have this couple that is marked by wavering faith, distrust, impatient missteps and brokenness. And yet God still uses them in an incredible way to bring about this promised Messiah, this offspring. So Genesis 15 is where we're going to be at And as we look at the story tonight, I hope what we ultimately get to is that we each see that our right standing before God is ultimately based on faith and not what we do. And that no matter who we are, God can use you in a tremendous way. So Genesis 15, let's look through this story. We're going to work through, like I said, six chapters tonight of Genesis. It'll be a lot of fun. All right, so here's how Genesis 15 begins. Part two of Abraham's story. It says this. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am a childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said, Your offspring will be as numerous as these. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, so chapter 15, verse 1 starts like this. It says, After this... So God, back in Genesis 12, calls Abraham out of Haran. They go to Egypt because there's a famine. At one point, their nephew is stolen, and Abraham the warrior goes back and rescues him. And at this point, several years have passed by. It's not like chapter 12 is Tuesday and this is Friday. No, several years have passed by, and it says after this, So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So God appears to him again and says this. Look at verse one again. It says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So here, Abram and Sarai have been there waiting in the land of Canaan. Some hard things have happened, but God comes and says, hey, I'm your shield. I'm your protector, and I am your very great reward. And here's how Abram responds. So he gets this vision of God, God reaffirms his promise, and here's Abram's response. But Abram said, verse two, Lord, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now, I don't wanna be too harsh on Abraham, but in my mind, it'd be like if Isla, my daughter, came up to me and was like, dad, I drew you a picture. And I'm like, oh yeah? What drawing skills do you have that you could draw me a picture? It's like God comes to Abram and says, hey, I have this promise. I'm going to bless you. I am your shield. I'll give you a great reward. And Abram's like, God, it doesn't matter what reward you could give me. I have no child. And the heir of my house is this guy named Eliezer. What could you give me? God doesn't flinch, but instead he responds this way. Verse four says, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Eleazar, he's not gonna be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So God reaffirms his promise to Abram to give him an offspring. And that through this offspring, the, the nations will be blessed. So then God takes Abram outside, verse five. Here's what he does. He took him outside and said, hey, look up at the sky. Count the stars if indeed you can count them. That is how numerous your offspring shall be. You just get this epic moment in the life of Abram. You're in the presence of God. God takes you out to look at the stars. He says, and he reaffirms his promise. Now, remember, like I said, years have passed by. If you're Abram and Sarai, at this point, you were faithful to follow the call of God, to leave your people, to leave your land. And now you're walking in faithfulness, trying to follow God. But over the years, it has been difficult. So far as you have tried to follow God, say for five, eight years, you've experienced a famine that forced you to leave the land that you're supposed to go to and you go to Egypt. Your nephew is captured by a band of warriors and you have to go rescue him. It's been a hard, lonely time following God. And in the midst of that, God comes in and Abram experiences this transcendent moment where the promise of God is reaffirmed to him. And God takes him outside and you just have this, like picture in your mind that God takes him out in the coolness of the night, in this dark Middle Eastern, ancient Near East sky, and there's just stars everywhere. And in this transcendent, powerful moment, God reaffirms his promise to Abram. Yeah, it's been hard. Yeah, you've been waiting, but here's my promise. I will bring an offspring. You get this awesome moment. And in the midst of that, Abram responds in this way. Verse six, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed. Abram believed in the revealed promises of God, that God would provide a child for them. In the midst of this this hard time, as they're trying to follow God year after year, waiting, famine, nephew stolen, God comes up and in this transcendent moment affirms his promise and Abram believes this revealed promise of God and it's credited to him as righteousness. So what is righteousness? What does it mean to receive righteousness? What I wanna do for the next five minutes is pause in the story of Abram and just work through this concept of righteousness or another word that's commonly used in this kind of in this topic is the word justification. So what is righteousness? What is justification? Really to understand that you need to be able to answer three questions. What is righteousness? Why do we need it? And how do we receive it? So what is righteousness? righteousness. Uh, Like I said, typically there's two words that we use when we talk about righteousness, justification and also righteousness. So justification is the moment when God declares you forgiven of your sin and having received the righteousness of Christ. So in your status before God, not only are you forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed, but you also possess in your status, the righteousness of Christ. What does it mean to have the righteousness of Christ? Think of a grade report. If you got to the end of this semester and you failed every single one of your classes, that would suck. But imagine you have a grade report, all Fs are there. Justification is not only that God erases the Fs and gives you another try at the class. A lot of times we think that's what justification is. It's not just that. It's not only that God erases the Fs, but that he replaces them with A pluses. That's righteousness. That to your account, that when God looks at you, he sees the perfect record of obedience of Jesus in your place. So in your status, in the moment of justification, you are forgiven of sins. The Fs are cleared and you are given the righteousness of Christ, A pluses in their place. So now God looks at you being as if you were perfectly obedient like Christ. That's justification. So then the second question, why do we need that? Why do we need righteousness or justification? All right, if you remember last week, I said that in the beginning, God created everything. Humans rejected God and that led to sin. That we, because of our rejection of God, are now guilty before him. And because of that, there is a debt that we have against God. Now that's a problem that our relationship with the God of the universe, the God that we were created to glorify and be in relationship with, that relationship is now severed because of our rejection against God. And because of that, we stand guilty. Guilty for our sin, guilty for our rejection, and we are in a state of condemnation. And because of that, we then face an eternity separated from God. That's the problem that we face. So why, if that's what righteousness is, F's gone, A plus is there. Why do we need that? Because we face the problem of our sin, that we stand condemned before God because of our rejection. So if that is the case, then how are we justified? What is the solution to that problem? If our problem is sin against God, what is the solution? How are we justified? How do we receive righteousness? Now the vast majority of people and the vast majority of religions have typically answered that question by saying, if you do enough good things, you will be justified. If the good things in your life stack up and outweigh the bad things in your life, then you will be righteous. You'll be saved, you'll be good before God. That is the solution that the vast majority of people and the vast majority of religions suggest as the way in which we deal with our sin problem. Just do enough good things, and you will be good before God. Here's the problem with that. So I owned a moped. Not actually, actually, not just one moped. I owned two mopeds in college, uh, at the exact same time. It was awesome. So I had a Honda Spree 1981. That thing was awesome. The Black Mamba. I had a 2000, let's see, seven Honda Elite. It was purple. It was amazing. It was just like you know. It was, it was letting me know, foreshadowing my time at UNI as a Panther. Purple moped, it was incredible. Honda Elite, that thing was fast. So I loved my mopeds and I rode them all the time. There's about a thousand stories I could tell. One story. I go to my buddy's apartment at two in the morning. I'm riding the purple ape hanger. That's how I referred to that, lovingly referred to my purple ape hanger. I am riding it. I get to my buddy's apartment, drop something off, I am driving back. Now I can see the towers at Iowa State from his apartment. That is how close I am. In between his apartment and the towers, there's a stop sign. It's two in the morning. And I think to myself as I'm approaching the stop sign, Stephen, there's a cop, you know there's a cop, stop come to a complete stop. I have that literal thought go through my mind. I pull up to the stop sign. And here's what I did because I rode my mopeds a lot. I usually didn't stop. I just like tried to wiggle like this and just so I like could keep my balance, but come to a complete stop. But technically my feet never touched the ground and my movement never really came to a complete stop. So I kind of wiggle at the stop sign. I go, I'm like, Two in the morning, this is great. There's the towers, I'm about to crawl in bed. It will be awesome. Blue and red lights behind me. There was, in fact, a cop sitting at that stop sign ready to snag me. So he pulls up and I don't have anything. Like I don't have my license, don't have my registration, don't have my insurance because I just had to drop something off at my buddy's house two minutes away. Now imagine this. Imagine when the cop pulls me up. This is not what I said, but imagine I said something like this. In order to try to get off the hook for running that stop sign, I said, hey, look, I have stopped with a complete stop touching my feet to the ground every single time in my life. And I promise that every time moving forward, I will come to a complete stop, touch my feet to the ground for the rest of my life. This will be the one time that I break this law. The cop would say, great, that's awesome. I'm glad that's the case, but here's the deal. Past obedience to a law and future obedience to a law doesn't change the fact that you broke the law today. Here's the reality. Thinking that our good works or our obedience or our doing enough good things will solve our sin problem is like asking how many times do you have to stop at a stop sign to get let off the hook for running at once. Um, It doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. And it's the same with God. There is a reality, James 2.10 says that even if you keep the law at every point yet stumble at one point, you are guilty of breaking it all. Romans 3.23 says that for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. There's a reality that future obedience and past obedience can't make up for the fact of breaking the law today. And here's the reality, every single human, every single one of us at some point has rejected God and therefore are guilty. And in the same way, following a stop sign every other time except once doesn't remove the problem of breaking that law in that moment. Walking in obedience to God or doing enough good things doesn't remove the fact or clear the guilt that we have before God for sinning against his law and rejecting him. So the reality is if you have been operating as if you can do enough good things in order to be saved, the fact of the matter is you are not saved. Romans 10 says that though they are zealous for good works, my prayer for them is that they would be saved. If you have been trying to solve your sin problem by doing enough good things, then today you stand in guilt before God. So the question then is what is the solution? All right, you don't have to turn here, but I'm going to look at Romans 4. Here's the solution that Paul gives. Paul, writing about this, says this. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? So Paul's asking, how did Abraham find righteousness? Verse 2, he asks this. If Abraham was justified by works, doing enough good things, he's got something to boast about but not before God. So he says, hey, how did Abraham find righteousness? If it was by works, that's kind of one solution. But here's Paul's answer. Was it works? Here's what he says, verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. How is it that Abraham found righteousness? Belief, faith trusting in the revealed promises of God. Paul is saying it's not by doing good works. It's not by his obedience or his doing good things, outweighing doing bad things. No, it was his belief in the revealed promises of God. And it was that faith that justified him before God, that made him right before God. So then how do we, if that's how Abraham found righteousness, how do we find righteousness? Well Paul gives us that answer right earlier, in a couple paragraphs earlier in Romans three. It says this: "They are justified," verse 24, freely by His grace, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus." Now a little bit lower, it says in verse 26, "He declared righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. How is it that we can find righteousness? It's faith in Jesus. Who gives us, who justifies us freely by his grace that is in the redemption of Christ Jesus. All right, so where are we? If that is justification, where are we in this story? To summarize, you've got Abraham and Sarah who have received this promise of God. Abram believes God, it's credited to him as righteousness. God takes him out, sees the stars in the sky, he believes. So what next? Well, at this point, an interesting pattern emerges in the story of Abraham back in, verse, or back in chapter 15. An interesting pattern begins to emerge. Abraham believes God. God gives him this promise. He believes him. He responds in faith. But as you go through the next six chapters, you'll begin to see this pattern where Abraham, has, Abraham and Sarah have a moment of wavering faith. God comes in, reaffirms his promise. Abraham and Sarah respond in faith. It goes good for a little bit. Then they waver in their faith. They get impatient. Brokenness emerges. God shows back up, reaffirms his promise. They respond in faith. And then that pattern just continues. So for example, chapter 16, they get this promise in chapter 15. Then in chapter 16, they start to get impatient. So what happens? Sarah says, hey, Abram, I know how we could have a kid. You sleep with my servant. You sleep with Hagar, we'll have a baby that way and that can be the promised offspring that God has told us about. So Abraham does it. He sleeps with Hagar, they have Ishmael and it leads to brokenness and pain. Hagar's mistreated, she's cast out and it just leads to a painful situation. But then God steps in chapter 17 into the midst of this mess and he reaffirms his promise again. Now Abram is 99 years old, 24 years have passed by. Abraham gets this promise reaffirmed. And in the midst of God affirming his promise again to give them a child, what does Abraham do? He has a moment of wavering faith. He says, God, I'm an old man. Can't Ishmael just be the promised chosen offspring? And God says, no, man, I... I'm going to give you a child. He reaffirms his promise. And then Abram responds in faith and obedience. They go through the covenant circum- or, uh, a symbol of circumcision. And it seems like all is good again. Then you get to chapter 18. God reappears to Abraham, gives him this promise again, reaffirms the fact that next time, this, t- this time next year, I'm going to bring you a child. But what happens in the background? Who's caught laughing? Sarah. Sarah's laughing because she's just like, I can't believe this. God, you have told us for 24 years you're gonna give us a child. I'm now 90. Abram is now 100. There's no way. And she's laughing. And God says, hey, Sarah, why would you think that this is too hard for God? I am going to do it. And he again reaffirms his promise to Sarah and to Abraham. This just continues, this pattern of, Promise given, respond with faith. Then wavering faith, impatience, brokenness emerges. God returns, gives them the promise again. They respond in faith. And it's just this pattern over and over again until finally you get to chapter 21, verse one. Finally, this promised offspring arrives. It says this, the Lord came to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. God comes he fulfills his promise to Sarah and Abraham. He fulfills it himself. And you can't miss the fact that it says, the Lord came, the Lord did. From start to finish, this whole process has not relied on Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise. So they get Isaac and from Isaac, you get Jacob. And from Jacob, you get Judah. And for the next 2,000 years, you can trace God's faithfulness to bring the promised Messiah through the lineage of this family until you get to Jesus Christ of Nazareth 2,000 years later. God fulfills his promise. God was faithful to his promise that through this family, he would bring his Messiah into the world. Okay, so what does this mean for us? What does this mean, this story mean for us now in 2021, this story of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful family? I think the most natural application that we could think of is, man, we need to be people filled with faith. If we have a God that despite our wavering faith, despite our brokenness, despite our sin would use family like this to bring about his great promise of salvation into the world, that he every step of the way was faithful, that he ultimately fulfilled it, then we can trust him as we try to follow him in life. That is the most natural application that comes to my mind. But here's the problem. As I have tried to walk by faith, And as you have tried to walk by faith, most likely you have run into some hardships. You've run into some moments where being filled with faith is rather difficult. And typically for me, there's two things, two insecurities that have emerged in my life that make walking by faith very difficult. The first insecurity is feeling insecure about whether or not I can really trust that my right standing before God is by faith and faith alone. Because here's what happens. A lot of times I get, or a lot of times either in my life or what I've seen in other people's life is you get excited about what God is doing. You have a transformative moment in college. You begin to read your Bible. You begin to have a spiritual awakening. You put your faith in Jesus. But at some point or another, that ugly side of your sinful flesh is going to reemerge. And you're gonna think, man, I thought I was done with this. Man, I thought I was more mature than this. If I'm truly saved, how could I still struggle with this? The number of students that I have talked to post spring break their freshman year, who had an amazing experience until spring break and then went off and got drunk or slept with someone or fell back into a sinful habit that they thought they were done with. The number of times that I have get, gotten into a new leadership position and then only to have sin revealed in my life. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, there's no way that somebody who has the depth of sin, who's done the things that I have done, there's no way that God could ever accept me. And the first insecurity that we feel is, can I really know that I have right standing before God? The second insecurity that I have felt and seen in the lives of others as I've tried to walk by faith is the insecurity of whether or not I can have confidence that God could use someone like me. Again, similar trajectory, similar scenario happens. You get into college. God begins to do incredible things in your life. There's spiritual transformation. You want to be used by God. But what inevitably begins to happen is you start to look around and you start to compare yourself to other people and you think, man, I would love to be used by God, but I just don't know if I have anything that is worth bringing to the table and you start to compare yourself. Maybe some of you want to be a student leader. You're excited to be a missionary to campus and you're thinking, I would love to do that, but I don't know enough Bible. I don't know as much Bible as that person. I don't have the personality that my student leader has. I don't have the gifts that that person has or the charisma that that person has. And, And as you compare yourself to others, you begin to wonder, could God ever use someone like me? And as we try to walk by faith, we usually find ourselves struggling with these two insecurities. Here's the reality. The story of Abraham answers how we can be free from those insecurities. We actually get the answer of how we can walk in freedom from those insecurities. And the answer to that came back in chapter 15. So look back there. When we try to live lives marked by faith, but we inevitably run into these insecurities, what frees us? What gives us confidence in our right standing before God? And what gives us confidence that God could use someone like me? The answer, like I said, is in chapter 15, and it's in the way in which God confirms his promise to Abram. So look at verse eight. After Abraham has the stars in the sky encounter, and after he believes the Lord is credited him as righteousness, Abram asked God this, verse eight, Lord, how can I know that I will possess it? How, will I, how can I know that I will possess this, pro, this promise is the question that Abram asked God. What Abram is essentially asking God to do is make a covenant with me. So this is what God does. The way he answers this, verse nine, he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him cut them in half and laid the pieces opposite of one another. But he did not cut the birds in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age and the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of Canaanites, Canaanites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perzizites, Rephraim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites. Woo! Wow, Stephen, that totally removed all my insecurity in life. Woo-hoo! It's like, wait, what on earth did we just read? How does that answer my insecurity problem? Here's what's happening. Abram says, God, how will I know that this, problem, this promise can be sure? How, will I, how can I know that I will possess it? What Abram is doing is asking God to make a covenant with him. Now, what you need to realize is in this time, it's about 2000 BC, the way in which you would make a covenant with someone is two parties would come together. They'd make promises. They'd say, here's what we're coming together, covenanting to do. This is my end of the deal. This is your end of the deal. And then the way they would ratify or you know, confirm this covenant is they'd set up this bizarre ceremony. They cut animals in half. They'd split them and make a path, like right here, like think a path with animals, dead animals on both sides. They'd make a path in between. And then the two parties would walk through that path and they would be confirming the covenant promises as they're walking through. And at some point they would say, just as these animals are cut in half and dead, let that curse fall on me if I fail to uphold my end of this covenant. And then both parties would agree. They'd shake hands, you know, high five or whatever they did in 2000 BC. And that covenant was ratified. So when Abram asked God, how will I know that this promise is trustworthy? How can I know that I will possess the promises that you've made to me? God says, well, let's set up a covenant ceremony. Let's ratify this covenant and so they kill animals, they separate them, they make a path. But something is different about this covenant ceremony than the ones I just described. What's different? Only one party passes through. In verse seventeen, what did it say? It said, "When the sun had set, it was dark, and a smoking firepot and flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals." Where was Abraham? God had put him to sleep and God represented in the, in the pot and the torch moved between the divided animals. And as he's moving, he's saying the promises. I'm gonna take your, your people into this uh, 400 years of enslavement, but then I'm gonna be faithful to bring them out and they will possess this land. He's saying the promises. But as he's passing through, what is he saying? He's saying in the same way that these animals are dead. If either of us are unfaithful to this covenant, let those curses fall on who? On the one who's passing through. Most of the time there's two, but this time there was one. And what God was saying to Abraham is, if either of us are unfaithful to this covenant, let the curse of death fall on me. And that's exactly what happened because we just saw for the next six chapters, Abraham was consistently unfaithful to this covenant. And then we will see Isaac consistently unfaithful to this covenant. We will see Jacob consistently unfaithful to this covenant. We will see Israel consistently unfaithful to this covenant. We will see humanity consistently unfaithful to this covenant. And we will see in our lives unfaithfulness to the covenant that we have made to God. And when God passed through alone, what was he saying? Let the curse of all the unfaithfulness of Abraham, let the curse of all the unfaithfulness of Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Israel, you and me and all of humanity fall on me. And on the cross, the one who passed through the dead animals experienced death and the curse of all fell on him so that we who had been unfaithful to the covenant with our God would not suffer the consequence of death, but instead have the opportunity to receive the righteousness of Christ. God was the one who passed through the animals saying, I will take on the curse of death so that your right standing never depended on you, but depended on what Christ did for you? What frees you from the insecurity when in the moment of sin and you wonder, could God really love me? What frees you from basing how you think God views you on whether or not you're having a good day or a bad day? It's knowing that your sin was placed on Jesus so that all that was left for you is his righteousness. What frees you from comparing yourself to other people and wondering, could God use me? It's knowing that the God of the universe went through the path of death so that you could have life in him and so that he could use a 70-year-old, 100-year-old couple who had no kids to bring in the child that would save the world. What frees us from insecurity? It's knowing that Christ took death on the cross so that we have righteousness and that by his grace, not only are we saved, but by his grace, we can be used. And that when we put our faith in him, the spirit indwells us and gives us gifts to be used by God, not because there's anything in us, but because we have committed in faith to an extraordinary God. That is who Jesus is and that is what ultimately frees us from insecurity and frees us to live a life marked by faith, to live a life of confidence, resting not in ourselves but in Christ. That is what the story of Abraham points us to, not to an extraordinary man but to a great God who would walk the path of death for us so that we could have a righteousness that's not our own but that's found in Christ. And so that we could have a confidence to live by faith, walking with him for the rest of our life. And in the moments of, un, of, of wavering faith, of, of unfaithfulness, of brokenness, we can come back to the God who rescued us and redeemed us on the cross. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Abraham. Thank you for the story that highlights your glory that you used a very ordinary couple, Abraham and Sarah, who in and of themselves had an impossible task to have a child as a hundred year old couple. But God, you used them by your grace to demonstrate to us that your plan of salvation had nothing to do with who we are and to demonstrate to us that your ability to use us in your plan of salvation has nothing to do with us, but again, everything to do with you. And God, that you are inviting us to walk by faith in the same way Abraham did, resting in the promises that you've given us. And God, when there's moments of wavering faith in our life or impatience or distrust, that we can fix our eyes again on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and come back to the God who does not waver, who is not impatient, who is only trustworthy, who is only faithful. And God, that you prove that to us when you walked the path of death. Lord, I pray that you would use us in a powerful way, but not because there's anything noteworthy in us, but because we're people with empty hands who've committed by faith to Jesus. Amen.